and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor, and in today's show, we're talking all things crypto. Once the shadowy figure of the dark side of the internet, in recent years, cryptocurrencies have slowly begun to enter the realm of mainstream finance and mainstream fintech. But how did we get here and what's going to happen next? In the past six months, I don't know if anybody saw, but Square reported their earnings. And in Q2 2020, they attributed $875 million in Bitcoin revenue and see it as a key driver for use of their cash app and its popularity. Add to that Robinhood, Revolut, and many, many more. And we thought it was time to have the main Fintech Insider conversation is crypto mainstream. To dive into this, I'm joined by some excellent guests. Making a Fintech Insider debut, we have Jamie Burke, who is CEO and founder of Outlier Ventures. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Tell us a little bit about Outlier. So Outlier Ventures has been uh, investing in the blockchain space generally for over seven years. We were one of the first dedicated funds to the space in Europe and uh, probably globally. And we've really evolved with the market. So back in the early days, we were a bit more of a studio because there was not really much to invest in. We've been an incubator of protocols when a lot of infrastructure needed to get built. And more recently, we're an accelerator focused on uh, middleware, so making a lot of this infrastructure usable, and the application layer, applying it to specific markets one of which, of course, is financial services. Phenomenal. Thank you, Jamie, for joining us. Uh, next up, we have Kevin Beardsley, who's head of the ProTrader experience at Kraken. Uh, thanks for joining us, Kevin. Tell us a little bit about what you do over at Kraken and remind everybody who Kraken is. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having us, Simon. Um, so my name is Kevin Beardsley. Um, I'm the head of the ProTrader experience at Kraken. We are one of the largest and oldest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world. Um, we see our mission as bringing cryptocurrency to sort of the masses, making it easier and more accessible. And along the way, our entire company is built outwards from security and privacy. So everything we do as a firm is about maintaining user security of funds um, and privacy of user information and privacy of user funds. So we're here to just help people get involved in cryptocurrency and make it easier to access. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, joining us for the first time on Fintech Insider, but of course, uh, one of our regulars on Blockchain Insider is the one and only Rian Lewis, who's author of the brand new book, The Cryptocurrency Revolution. Thanks for joining us, Rian. Tell us a little bit about you and your book. Um, well, the show's really timely, actually, because um, the book is, in a sense, bringing um, crypto ideas to a more mass market throughout my whole involvement in the crypto and blockchain scene from running London Women in Bitcoin since 2014 to um, working as an um, Ethereum tutor on uh, B9 Labs Engineering course. Um, I like explaining crypto and all things blockchain to people, whether they're fellow developers or working in mainstream finance. So uh, the book, which comes out on the 3rd of October, is an attempt to explain everything cryptocurrency and crypto asset to a mainstream audience. Um, perfectly timed. Perfect guest for the show, absolutely. And last but by no means least, uh, we have Cyril Matthew, who's Director of Business Development uh, over at Coinbase for EMEA. How are you doing, Cyril? I'm doing well. Thrilled to be here and, and thrilled to be on this uh, with, with all the other great panelists here. Um, a little bit about Coinbase. We're a global cryptocurrency platform founded in 2012. Uh, we pride ourselves on being one of the most easiest and trusted places uh, to buy, sell, manage cryptocurrencies. We have a brokerage an exchange, a custodian, 
um, and a number of new emerging product lines. Uh, my role is leading business development in the EMEA region, as well as helping to lead some of our day-to-day business activities around stable coins, so uh, the USDC coin, which we issue, or um, other stable coins that we interact with. So well, thank you so much for joining us with this esteemed panel. I guess we better get started. Um, I'm interested in you know, kind of where we're at right now and how we got here. So Rian, I'm, I'm going to come to you first because uh, what do you think was the turning point for uh, the mainstream consciousness of Bitcoin? Can you put your finger on it? And then do you think there was a moment where crypto really became a thing? Where was that for you? Um, the time when I first started noticing people coming to me asking questions about it instead of me going out saying, have you heard about it? Probably 2017, I guess. Same for lots of people. As always, we say that price is one of the least interesting things about the technology. But from a mainstream point of view, obviously, the price is the thing that makes people sit up and listen. I think there have been two waves, really. The first was when we saw the phenomenal price rise, the Bitcoin price rise that pulled all cryptos up with it. And then again, in the last year or so, just as we've started hearing central banks talking about CBDC, We saw everything with Libra in the last year. Libra, of course, being the digital currency that Facebook and partners are looking at launching. That's been, in a way, although people incorrectly conflate these with decentralized cryptos, they've been a huge driver of interest because, in a sense, for the mainstream market, the involvement of parties like central banks and companies like Facebook is seen to legitimize the idea of digital currencies, and it provides an opener for people to start talking about it. So to my mind, there's been these two different waves of mm. interest. I, I love that. And um, Cyril, do you, would you echo that? What was your sort of, uh, what does your uh, history timeline look like? Yeah, and I think we're still on the journey. We won't really know till maybe 10, 15 years from now uh, what these inflection points are. I totally agree about the bull run. It's myself telling personal stories when I was still working for Uber at the time. So I'm, I come from the tech, not really a finance background, but the bull run really got me interested. And I took part even in the mining rig at that time. And I'm by no means the technology geek in my crowd. So I think that shows you how much mainstream attention came, as Rianne mentioned, because of the price. But now with the pandemic, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that, You've seen much more interest. I think stablecoins, which I mentioned earlier, is one of the reasons there where government intention is there. Maybe it's because of the Libra project, which we're a member of, by the way. And the explosion of DeFi as well has really caught the attention, I think, more recently. So I think that's another milestone. I don't know if we're officially mainstream yet, but these are certainly really good inflection points. And I want to unpack all of that in a second, because I think the DeFi, the Libra piece is really, I guess, one of the things about why we're seeing the resurgence in interest. But Kevin, I just want to come to you first and get your abridged history and get your feel. I know you've been in the space for quite a while. Have you seen the attitude and the general public shift? And what do you think it's been from and to? Uh, Yeah, I've been professionally in cryptocurrency since 2014. I left a career in consulting. Um, I think people have been in crypto for a long time. Like Simon, I think we met back in 2014, 2015 when you were at Barclays. So it's hard to say we met before the bubble happened in 2017 or the speculative mania or whatever you want to call it. So people have been interested in this for a long time and people that represent large institutions have been aware of it. I think Sort of the three big waves we've seen was Bitcoin in 2013, 2014. We saw Ethereum in the ICO sort of boom in 2017, 2018. And along the way, there's been a few like this uh, Bitcoin, not blockchain thing that we saw in 2015 that kind of came and went. 
There was a security tokens push in 2019 that kind of came and seemed to have somewhat fizzled out. It seems like the big story this year is going to be DeFi, and uh, that seems to really, really have legs. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I really like that summary of the narratives that have dominated. Jamie, I'm going to throw it to you. How do you reflect on those narratives? Do those feel like the big ones to you? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the first point of legitimacy came with R3, which is probably one of the more familiar initiatives to your fintech audience, where a large number of banks, a banking consortia, got together initially to procure blockchain services and then after we went on to build Corda and uh, try to service that that market themselves and but that was certainly the point where the financial services industry woke up to the potential began to explore it and where the mainstream press almost in the build-up towards 2017 started to take this stuff seriously. Yeah and I think that's a really good summary of the history. Cyril I guess I'm interested in what you've seen as like who the buyer is. You know, like if you were to look at the Coinbase customer, the Kraken customer, Cyril, I'll start with you. Is it mostly professionals these days? Is it mostly consumers by volume and by value? I know those are slightly different things. Cyril, uh, what do you see? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, You know, uh, during the run that we've mentioned in 2016-17, Coinbase just had a huge spike in retail volume. And fortunately, we're able to take advantage of that with having, I think, a simple UI for people to sign up in in, in a trusted place. More recently, I think, because of a number of folks like Kraken, Coinbase, etc., really, I think, leading with this message of being compliant, embracing what regulators would mention as trust, We've seen a flurry of institutional interest, and I always like to point out more recently the interest from really these hedge fund managers. Paul Tudor Jones is one of the most famous historical hedge fund managers in the world, and he's just said that he's putting 1% to 2% of his assets uh, in Bitcoin specifically. And so you see more and more companies. MicroStrategy is another company that came out, which is a publicly listed company in the U.S., and said that they're holding some of their treasury in Bitcoin now. So I think because of this, You've seen a lot more institutional demand, and we're seeing that on Coinbase as well. We recently made an acquisition of a company called Tagomi for that reason, because we're seeing so much demand from that space. That's interesting. Kevin, are you seeing similar things, and do you think that makes it mainstream if the consumer isn't doing it? Because there are a lot of things that are, quote-unquote, mainstream in financial services that aren't mainstream to the consumer. Would that definition fit for you? Yeah, so I know the sort of uh, institutional side of it quite well, actually. So I spent a year as managing director at B2C2, which is one of the largest um, trading firms in the space and recently raised $30 million from SBI. Then I was a partner at Elwood, which is um, the trading arm of a company owned by Alan Howard, who's one of the largest hedge fund owners in the world. Um, So I've sat on both sides of the exchange side and on the sort of professional or institutional trading side, as it were. And I think what's actually really exciting about cryptocurrency is that it's one of the only movements that's entirely or almost entirely led by individual traders. So quote unquote, retail people. It's one of the few marketplaces where the large traders don't have a massive structural advantage, where you can show up with your small deposit and trade alongside using the same infrastructure that the large traders play. Um, You can actually probably move more quickly than quite a lot of the large players because you're just moving your own money around. Um, So I think what's really exciting about cryptocurrency is that it has been driven by adoption of retail or individual users and will continue to be. And that's actually levels the playing field and makes it very exciting for people. Okay. 
I think is a really great point that the democratization of access is really interesting. And though there's also a caveat with that, you know, Robinhood especially has been in the news with some quite unfortunate events, uh, you know, really from around the complex nature of some of the products they have, not necessarily related to crypto at all, we should point out. But do you think there is some value in that democratization that people feel like, hey, I can go get access to this stuff and it's potentially in my interest and I want to, there's a latent demand there? I think that's absolutely right. And it's really important, this kind of drive from the bottom upwards that we're seeing, because um, you could argue that maybe this is one of the things that's led to the redefinition of accredited investors in the States, is this kind of push from retail to want to get access to products that are perceived as being the preserve of an elite group of people who can get really great returns that ordinary people can't. I mean, obviously, the caveat is that, well, we've just, uh, as you mentioned earlier, DeFi is where it's all happening at the moment. Uh, possibility of great rewards and also great losses. We've, over the last couple of days, we've had the whole sushi debacle and various other things going on. Um, so this I won't even begin to explain this now. We can cover DeFi in more detail later. But obviously, the danger with people piling into this without educating themselves properly is that DeFi is a very exciting, but largely at the moment, unregulated space. Obviously, the argument is that products are being launched, which eventually will be retrospectively regulated, as we saw with a lot of the 2017 ICOs at the moment there's no oversight. In lots of ways, this is a fantastic thing because it means people can experiment, they can create products that haven't even been dreamt of before. But at the same time, there's the potential for people who don't really know what they're doing to lose lots and lots of money. Fortunately, I think the um, DeFi as it works at the moment, everyone who's involved kind of does know what they're doing because it's so complex that you don't really have that many people involved who are completely naive about the risks. But obviously, Obviously, yeah, caveat emptor. Yeah, buyer beware indeed. Jimmy, I want to, uh, we've thrown around this term DeFi a little bit and we threw CBDC. Can we just get some definitions out of you? Like, how do you define DeFi and how do you define CBDC? Because those are two big trends. Because historically, we saw the 2017, you know, bull run and everybody wanted to, the retail investor understood Bitcoin. But there's two different conversations there about CBDC and, and DeFi. So what, what do your definitions sound like for those? Yeah, and I throw another one in, which is CFI. So a lot of things that might be classed as DeFi actually by people deep in the space would regard as CFI, i.e. there's a high degree of centralization. And ultimately, they kind of serve a spectrum. And, uh, you know, CBDCs, you could argue, would not fall within uh, the DeFi camp. So it's fairly nebulous at the moment, and people are still kind of working through definitions. But the way that you should understand uh, decentralized finance as a, as on a spectrum is that effectively the kind of composability that's come with Ethereum has allowed people to effectively create a kind of permissionless sandbox for innovation in financial services, primarily around the minting of digital assets that can be digitally scarce and smart contracts with a degree of programmability, programmable wow. money or assets. So this is very dense language, Jamie. Um, I, I guess to unpack that and bring it up a level, Cyril, how would you explain it to your colleagues when you were working at Uber? Like when you think about DeFi versus C5 versus CBDC, what do these things mean? Can we just explain what DeFi means? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I had to ask myself that when I first encountered this. Um, we talked earlier about how important a retail investor is, and this is really, for lack of a better word, and using the buzzword, democratizing access to financial applications and protocols. So borrowing and lending, you used to always have to go to a bank in the past to do that, or earning a savings on a protocol. But now, I think with the combination of stable coins and these new protocols, people are able to access with just their mobile phones. And so, uh, by the way, I think DeFi stands for decentralized finance uh, for, for the audience there who hasn't put that together. But um, I, I think it's really interesting to see. And I don't think we should go down the rabbit hole of yield farming and all these things. But I like to explain it to the Uber colleagues as you can now access borrowing, saving, lending, etc. just by your mobile phone and putting together some stable coins. I, and I think that's it, isn't it? Is that you can potentially, and I know this is grossly oversimplifying, um, borrow and or lend without a middleman. Uh, and it's grossly oversimplifying, but that's the the kind of the gateway drug that I understood it with. And Kevin, how would you build on that for decentralized finance, DeFi? What does it actually mean? What does it mean for the market? Yeah, so I'll, um, you asked for defining the terms. So CBDC is generally referred to as, I'll, I'll go through a few terms if that's okay, that your users might encounter if they're on Twitter or whatever. Um, CBDC is a term that is generally referred to as central bank digital currency. So if we're talking about the same CBDC here, Simon, um, so that is the idea that a central bank would issue their own digital currency, and then banks and even individuals would be able to move that currency around. It's sort of like a digital dollar or a digital yuan. So the two countries that you hear talking about it a lot are China and America. And there is a lot of pressure and momentum within some governments to start to issue a central bank digital currency. And I can talk about the trade-offs of it a little bit more if you'd like. To use a few more terms that you'll see very often, uh, one is called fiat. So people in cryptocurrency will generally refer to as like normal money, like dollars, euros, pounds. They'll generally refer to it as fiat currency. So it's not a car then? <laughs> no, it's not a car. Um, and they'll generally refer to cryptocurrency as crypto. And then the CFI and DeFi that you talked about, they refer to as CFI as centralized finance and DeFi is decentralized finance. And the idea there is what is the entity that is providing the service to you? So Netflix, for example, would be a centralized video streaming platform, whereas Napster or Pirate Bay or Torrents would be a decentralized streaming platform. So in cryptocurrency, the CFI institutions are Kraken, Coinbase, Bitstamp, Binance. It is run by a group of individuals that you can identify who are shareholders and have investors and earn revenue and generally engage with life in a normal way. And then there's DeFi, which is the new crop. And I think it's extremely exciting what's happening there, but they're experimenting with infrastructure and building institutions. And they are experiments where there is no central single unit of ownership that you can subpoena or call into question. So DeFi is decentralized financial institutions. Jamie, you wanted to build on that. Yeah, I think that point of experimentation is, is really important. So the way that you can think of DeFi is this permissionless environment where people can regulate, I wouldn't say, um, can innovate without regulation or at least ahead of regulation. And what that means for financial services is if you think about financial services as it is today, and you could argue including fintech, it isn't necessarily seen as very innovative. It kind of fails to deliver yield or efficiencies for retail customers. And so the argument for something like DeFi is because it's permissionless, it is competition max. It is constantly a bunch of coders effectively optimizing for 
finding an equilibrium between both low fees, kind of cost efficiencies, and high yield. So, you know, interest-bearing products. Interesting subject of interest. Rian, Jamie mentioned fintech ever so slightly and, and sort of said that maybe the crypto enthusiast has kind of looked at fintech and not seen the returns that they want from it or not seen the change that they want from it. But do you think there is something about the fact that Revolut allows you to buy, sell and hold cryptocurrency, Square does, Robinhood does? Does that bring a sense of legitimacy that has really added to the market in some way in the eyes of most people? Yeah, I think to be honest, the Revolut thing was a bit of a game changer. And I heard anecdotally people who hadn't bought crypto before were buying Bitcoin through Revolut. The important thing to understand, of course, is that there are limitations when you have this kind of thing. You have a Revolut wallet. I believe you can only send crypto easily to other Revolut owners without jumping through lots of more acronyms, KYC, know your customer hoops. And the thing about crypto, of course, is that historically people have not wanted to get involved with know your customer. But I think it's essential, even if you, if there are graduations of it, there are people who are going to want to transact through mainstream apps and where the user interface makes it very easy for people and they don't have to worry about their own security and so on. There are people who will want to do it completely independently in a completely decentralized way. And catering for all abilities and all tastes, I think, is critical to converging the whole crypto and fintech world and making them more unified. I mean, in um, years to come, I, I think we're all going to be transacting with digital currency, whether that is CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, corporate digital currencies, decentralized cryptocurrencies. It's all going to be money at the end of the day. We might even be spending different flavors of money in different situations via apps without really realizing which one is being converted to whichever one behind the scenes. It sounds complex, but I think in terms of the complexities, it's largely going to be the people behind the scenes who are handling it rather than necessarily going to be something that the consumer is necessarily very aware of. I love that idea that it solves different problems for different people. So, you know, if you're sort of kind of new to it, it's just getting access to this thing. Um, there are some mainstream looking apps that are very simple and easy to use that can help you do that. Whereas the enthusiast sort of more technical audience has moved on from some of the simpler things and now is looking at much more complex stuff and, and putting that together into more of a pro experience. So we've done extremely well getting through a lot of definitions and setting the scene. I'm going to take us to an ad break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the implications for it potentially going mainstream, which I think Rian, you, you kind of led us to there, and then where we might be going next. So thank you so much. We're just going to take a quick break and shamelessly plug a few other things we have going on. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech, combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology. Only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification and the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risks, fraud, and costs. You can discover more at mytechsystems.com. Fintech Insider listeners, we need you. If you listen to the show, whether this is your first episode, your 450th, whatever it is, if you dip in and dip out, we'd love it if you could just take a few moments to give us your feedback. It helps us shape the future of the show. We want to know what you like and what you don't. Maybe it's me doing ad reads you don't like. You can tell us that. If you want to visit bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey, you can get anything off your chest, whatever it is. That's bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. It will only take five minutes and you can do it on your phone right now if you want. Alrighty, thank you and on with the show. 
Alrighty, I'm going to ask a slightly different question. Cyril, um, I guess you, you're in an interesting spot with, uh, and I guess a bit like Kevin, um, the question I have is, should crypto go completely mainstream? Ryan was saying there that there's, the hypothesis is, you know, this will happen inevitably at some point. It'll just be changing how it happens behind the scenes. And Jamie mentioned, you know, fintech really changed the front end, but had it changed the underlying infrastructure? So I guess I'll start with you by asking, does crypto need to go completely mainstream? And, and what would be the impact of that? And what would it look like? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's all relative and definition of how you how you define mainstream. I think Coinbase, we feel one of our roles is that, is actually to bring some of the mainstream into the industry. And um, I, I would answer yes. I think what we need to see for that to happen, though, is quite a bit more utility. And I, I oversimplify this in two ways. I think you've seen a lot of interest in crypto for the investment use case. And I personally believe like Bitcoin uh, remains king there where it has sound monetary policy, there's fixed supply, and you've seen a lot more interest for that, um, especially with all the quantitative easing that's happening during uh, the pandemic. Then you have Ethereum, you have these new DeFi protocols that we've discussed that are really trying to innovate on the use cases, whether that's, you know, remittances, whether that's, you know, settling FX trades, whatever that may be. And actually, I think if you're a fintech or you're a bank or you're in the financial industry and you're not providing exposure to crypto or blockchain, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage in the coming years. And uh, it's not just Revolut and Square. We've seen PayPal now express their interest and make some moves in this industry. And an analogy I like to use, I've heard from Brian Brooks, who used to be the chief legal officer at Coinbase, and he's now the head of the OCC, which is the uh, regulator that, uh, of all the national banks in the U.S. And he talks about Growing up in the U.S., which I did, you used to go to the department store and you would get your oil changed, you would buy the clothes that you need, and uh, everything was all in a one-stop shop. Now you don't have that. You have all these boutique shops. You go one place to buy your clothes, you buy somewhere else for your children's stuff, whatever that may be. And in a similar way, fintech has unbundled a lot of the banking services that we've seen today. And I think crypto takes that a step further. We talked about some of the protocols on borrow lending. I think you'll see different use cases really explode with the advent of crypto. And I think um, if you're a fintech, you need to be involved. Interesting. If you're a fintech, you need to be involved. Uh, Kevin, how do you respond to that? And do you think there are things preventing uh, us from going mainstream? Should we go mainstream? Um, yeah, I would certainly love to see it go mainstream. I think it'll actually be a longer, uh, a slower burn than a lot of people necessarily think. Because I think part of what we're seeing is a generational shift um, rather than just a sort of uh, inflection point moment where it goes from zero to one. Crypto users tend to skew younger. They tend to be a little bit more technologically literate than some sort of general population uh, averages might be. But I think the things that are keeping it from going mainstream are the things that we work every day to address. So primarily making it easier to use, making it more accessible, um, providing good customer support, like a Bitcoin key is not a very easy thing to work with if you've never done it before. It's a string of a 32 character string of random letters and numbers, um, providing the security that goes along with that. So I think there is a huge role for companies like Kraken, these crypto native businesses that have the infrastructure and the focus on making it easier to use. Because without that, all you're ever really buying is like a CFD on crypto, which is like fine, but you're not actually buying the underlying thing. So, yeah. It's interesting, Kevin. I just wondered, though, if it did become easier and it did become sort of something that was more accessible, like what problem does it solve for people? Is it really about having another way to save and invest in the short term or are there other problems we can solve too? I think the reality is the... Use cases of crypto today are relatively limited. Bitcoin, I think, fairly objectively allows you to move value between any two points on Earth in under in about 10 minutes, which is a big leap forward from traditional infrastructure. 
Ethereum allows you to do very basic computational functions in a decentralized way, but it's more of like an amoeba or like an early stage of an evolution of a much larger thing. So I think today, cryptocurrency is a lot of speculation, a lot of trading, um, and some very basic use cases that are being addressed by some of these technologies. I don't think we have this vision of a world computer or the idea that the all the machines are going to be sending money back and forth. I think we're still some way away from that. Interesting. Jamie, how do you reflect on that? Do you think that we will go mainstream and what problems will we solve if we do? Is it really for the consumer? Yeah, well, I think if we stick to the kind of definitions that we unpacked earlier on, if you look at DeFi as an extreme end of that spectrum, decentralized finance and the other one, uh, centralized finance, decentralized finance for me is really where the innovation happens in this permissionless environment. And so if you look at what happened with the whole ICO mania in 2017, nobody wanted a regulator until they lost money. So people are happy tinkering around at the edges with innovation, but they ultimately still want um, protection. They want risk to be managed. And so I think there's two things that are interesting. The first one is, what is the interplay between CFI and DeFi? So um, some of the people who are on this show right now, you know, what are they looking to integrate into their product offering as a bridge into regulated products and, and retail customers? And then equally, you could look at fintech in the same way. I would argue that DeFi should always be where the, the extreme innovation happens. The bar is incredibly high. Um, as Rianne mentioned, just technically using these things is, is very difficult. But equally, um, the cost of transaction fees in Ethereum at the moment make the transaction size prohibitively high for a retail investor. So these are all natural boundaries to allowing retail in. Um, and then the kind of final thing is the regional play. So, you know, DeFi, I think, has greater potential to just go over the top in emerging markets, whilst in the West, we're really looking at how does this interplay and interact with fintech and CeFi. Mm, yeah, interesting questions depending on where you are. Cyril, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I would just, from uh, one thing that I didn't mention from a Coinbase perspective is just really what our mission is. Um, we're a centralized entity in this decentralized world, and um, we actually embrace that. Uh, and our mission is creating an open financial system, and I think a lot of people believe that. And what that actually means, I know it sounds like a buzzword, but is there's still you know, hundreds of millions in the world, but even in, if you look at a market like the U.S., tens of millions of people that are unbanked and don't have the same access to the financial system. And so, sure, you can solve things on the blockchain, like property ownership and lots of other cool use cases, but I think just the financial inclusion piece is really huge, which is why I agree with Kevin, it's going to take years for this to go mainstream, but I think uh, focusing on that piece still changes the world. There's a lot of data that shows when you have more financial inclusion and when people can access the system, there's a lot of data that's correlated to it, like life expectancy, uh, the quality of life, et cetera. So just wanted to, to mention that as a kind of overarching point. It's interesting. Our CEO of 11FS, David Breer, often says that inside of a bank called banking infrastructure, outside of a bank often looks like sedimentary rock. You can tell the years and the technologies that have passed over the decades by where it is and everything's a layer on what was there before. And that opportunity to remake it is kind of exciting and kind of also very, very early. I like Kevin's example of it being an amoeba. Rian, though, there's what can we do to help with uh, inexperience that are getting into this space? You know, there's I guess there's some best practice, but should there be responsibility around safeguarding from inexperienced users? And, and what are you seeing in that space that might be good practice? Um, I think education is key here. It's very difficult to dissuade people from piling all their money into something when 
they are used to operating in a very regulated structure. Although having said that, there are such things as boiler room scams, aren't there, in traditional finance, and people have lost a lot with schemes that are nominally regulated in the traditional world, but have broken those regulations. So I suppose there's the argument is that people need financial education all round. It's crazy the number of people. I remember reading a survey once that showed that um, some staggering majority of people who had cars on car finance had no idea. It was something like about 90% couldn't tell how much they still owed and what the total sum they paid would be. I think there's a lot of ignorance in general about financial products. If you asked a lot of people to explain an APR, they wouldn't be able to do so. And that's why we've seen crackdowns on things like payday lending. Obviously, once you get into the crypto world, scams can be rife like they are everywhere else. As the example of OneCoin, for example, which was a very, very sad case where people were um, all around the world were scammed out of money they could not afford to lose. Educating people um, not to just put their money into the nearest get-rich-quick scheme is really important. But also, if people are going to transact for themselves, rather than going through a centralized system, just obviously explaining about key safety and things like that. But then again, are a lot of people really going to be interested in taking those steps? I always believe in providing people with the information they need, then letting them decide how safe they feel. I think usability of um, digital products in the crypto world is another huge thing. Um, you have, I think it's probably a consequence of this that a lot of people who are involved in crypto at that kind of base level are developers or engineers or people with a tech background because the user interfaces are not very friendly. So things like friendly user interfaces that are more what people expect from financial products, education, they're the critical things. And also, as I said earlier on, once people start using government digital currencies, they're going to feel a lot more confident with the whole principle of transacting entirely digitally. I think that's a, going to be a big gateway. I don't think it's necessarily going to crowd out decentralized cryptos. It'll be complementary to, I think. Interesting. Um, Kevin, you mentioned earlier that um, we're also seeing this generational shift. Expand on that point. Say more about it. Well, I think part of what we're seeing in the marketplace today or in the in the sort of uh, the zeitgeist, as it were, is that people are trying, there's always this like incentive to like leap forward and like, okay, Bitcoin is old news. I want the next thing that's going to go up 10,000% so I can buy my, my Ferrari or my Lamborghini. Um, but actually the, the kind of cool thing is, so I guess there's a question of DeFi, CeFi is like, where do you actually play today if you're new to the space and you're just learning about it? Do you really try to go all in on DeFi or do you try to just sort of buy a CFD type product on it? And I think what I might advise people to do is try not to leap past the latest, greatest thing. And instead, start at a place where you can buy Bitcoin um, and try sending it around. Like the actual action of just sending Bitcoin from one address to another um, is actually like it's actually the fundamentally the same technology that underpins every single blockchain um, that's out there. There's some minute differences, but the addresses all kind of look the same. The way you send them all kind of looks the same. So if you come to a place like Kraken, you buy it and you send it to your own wallet and then send it back. And if you can do that, you're actually 95% of the way to, to doing the DeFi type stuff. So I think it's really interesting to, to 
to not try to leap all the way to the latest and greatest thing and, and put a lot of stuff at risk and try experimental technology. Um, just go to an exchange and buy some Bitcoin. Alan Howard's already doing it. Paul Tudor Jones is doing it publicly. These are like major hedge fund guys that are doing this publicly and try moving it around. Put 20 bucks in. You can't lose you know, money that you're comfortable losing. Uh, but, but I think the best way for people to learn is to just try. Um, and try it at a place that that specializes in doing that. Uh, always timeless advice. Never invest in anything that you can't afford to lose. I think worthwhile restating. Uh, Jamie, I'm interested in your views in terms of, you know, really, do you think we're going to see more uh, as the generational shift that people start to integrate this into banks? I think somebody mentioned earlier that PayPal are looking at it. But will will we ever see a day in which it is just kind of normal that you can get access to these base cryptos? Do you think that's coming? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's already in process. And, you know, I think if you look at the role that revenue and profits can can be made from even a baseline of a crypto offering for a fintech startup can often be the difference between life or death, given most of them are loss making, um, you know, how do they somehow um, build that runway? I think also it's going to be really interesting as DeFi projects or even CeFi projects become better capitalized, and um, you know many of them are even uh, now looking at IPOs. Um, how do they use that money to acquire classic fintech startups as distribution channels to new users? Um, and even where might they begin to you know kind of acquire those companies? So I think it's I think this interplay between DeFi, CeFi, um, and fintech is going to be going to be really interesting. Um, at the end of the day, if you look at the kind of macro environment that we're in, the level of volatility that's out there, um, the lack of efficiencies, the lack of yield, I think this idea that with the two innovations, stable coins have really played a very important role in, I think, potentially bringing fintech mainstream, which is they've brought stability to what was inherently a volatile asset class. And now you have new innovations in DeFi, such as things like yield farming, where effectively you can get stability and yield. And so the combination of these two things, we're kind of having these layers, our own sedentary layers been built on top in DeFi that start to make these products more this, acceptable to mainstream. This alternative financial system is being built uh, and it sits alongside, there's there's kind of the, the 1.5 and then there's the 2.0, the 1.5 being the fintechs that offer you an access into it and then the 2.0 being this the new infrastructure. I really think, um, Cyril, I'd love your views on you know what we can do to kind of change some perceptions. I, I would argue that for some reason, the, the, the bankers especially, but there is a segment of society that's still a little bit worried about crypto in terms of, you know, is it just just all bad? Can I trust this stuff? How do we start to go about doing that? Rian mentioned education. Are there other things that you've seen that are best practice that we can be doing as well? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, I think all of us, especially in crypto, have to keep in mind, it's, it's only been around for a little over 10 years. So um, we're still early on that journey. Um, and some of the boring stuff is the most important. Uh, there were some early hacks of, of exchanges like Mt. Gox, etc., that are still pervasive in folks' mind. Um, so I think the more you focus on security, uh, regulatory compliance, uh, making sure that governments are comfortable with BSA, AML, et cetera, uh, will continue to be important. I've already plugged in kind of Brian Brooks, uh, head of OCC in the U.S. I, I think he's making some monumental 
statements, decisions at the OCC. One, for example, that national banks in the U.S. can now hold crypto custody. Uh, cu- sorry, custody crypto assets, yes. Um, also seemingly indicates that he would love to see a, a framework by which crypto platforms who think globally can have a national banking charter. It could go both ways. And, and Cyril, I think that's super interesting that you may see licensed charter holding banks in the US holding crypto and doing things with crypto. My my prediction is that we'll see that probably before the end of the year, if not early next year. Um, but we could also see businesses that deal in crypto getting charters. Is that, that sort of the, the two sides of it? Yeah. And then, I mean, in a marketplace, you you want all sides competing here. And uh, the, the market has spoken that users are, are more and more demanding this. And so, um, I think the government's job and, and why I keep mentioning Brian as, as the way he's, he's spoken about it is that we should put in the right regulatory framework and then get out of the way and let the market innovate. And on that point, I think last question for you, because um, we're, we're running up against it on time and it's been a, a super fast and, and, and rapid discussion, so much to get through. Uh, but Cyril, if we're in this in, in five years time, I know that's dangerous in crypto, but do you think uh, more people hold crypto or less? And do you think more institutions hold crypto or less? More and more. Uh, you've already seen the direction of travel. Um, you know, during this pandemic, uh, at Coinbase, we've seen Brian Armstrong tweeted something uh, when the U.S. stimulus checks went out. Uh, there were twelve hundred dollars stimulus checks, and the number of deposits and buys of cryptocurrency on that day spiked on Coinbase uh, by uh, an exponential amount. And again, I've pointed to a few things earlier because of the quantitative easing by governments, because of more utility use cases coming to fruition. And I think you'll continue to see that. I'm particularly passionate about, for example, sending money across borders with much less fees and and much faster. And I I think we're going to see headway there, whether it's the Ripple team, whether it's Libra, whether it's through stable coins, I think we're going to see more and more um, uh, innovation there, which really drives more and more people to kind of be in the space. With cross-border as a reforming banker, Kevin, I always wonder that the, we're solving a, um, a sort of a, a finance problem with a technology um, solution. And actually, you know, what do you think we'll be seeing in five years? Uh, will there be more people holding crypto and, and, and why do you think that would be? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't bet on very many things uh, in crypto, but I think one of the, the things that I certainly would bet on is that we'll have more people holding it in five years' time. That's um, a great and, place to start. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's just the trend is moving, and uh, I think it's sort of gained a level of momentum that will be very difficult to turn back the clock. Mm. Um, you know, we spoke a second ago, you and Cyril spoke at a very high level, which I could certainly do, but also maybe at a granular level. Um, we're seeing more and more people get interested in education about cryptocurrency. We're seeing huge strides forward in making it ease of use and ease of access to make people more confident in trying it. So there are big, big innovations happening that are making it easier to use and making people more confident in using it and making people understand it better. And that is sort of a cumulative effort globally across all the companies in the space. And I think the, the combined effort, the combined power of that means that we'll see many, many more people. Uh, continue to onboard and adopt cryptocurrency. Indeed. So I, I think in, in, in summary from both of you guys, and I think throughout the conversation, we've heard that you know, the hedge funds and the big investors are getting in. Um, the and, and Cyril, you mentioned as well that um, there's the beginnings of um, people seeing this as a hedge against um, kind of the deflation of their regular old currencies and Bitcoin as a sort of digital gold. So those are kind of interesting ideas that are there in, in, in the background as, as being potential things. Uh, Ryan, do you think we'll see more usage and what do you think is going to drive it? 
Um, I think I do think that um, one of the things that we've seen over recent years is that in countries where there's been a sudden inflationary event, you know, catastrophic inflation like in Argentina and Russia, that has driven interest in Bitcoin certainly as a store of wealth. And if in some of these other countries, possibly as a result of the pandemic, we might start seeing inflationary episodes in countries that haven't particularly had them before. That's obviously one kind of driver. Um, I think one thing that is sure and a cliche that I often trot out, crypto years are like dog years, but it's really true. Things happen extraordinarily quickly once they start happening. Um, for example, when my book went to press, there was something like 4.5 billion locked up in DeFi contracts two and a half weeks later, it was 9 billion. I mean, you know, where do you even start when you have um, acceleration that's that rapid? I think it just takes, um, sometimes it takes small things to produce large tipping points. And in five years time, very difficult to make predictions. But I think we'll just see general normalization of use, especially among younger users, whether that's holding, I don't know, crypto assets in the form of video game and art, um, NF, uh, NFTs, sorry, more acronyms here, uh, non-fungible tokens or um, standard cryptos, or whether it's older people holding cryptos as part of their pension funds. I think we are going to see mass adoption and perhaps it's it's one of those things you underestimate the pace in the short term, but um, or the reverse, whichever it is. Yeah, people tend to overstate the pace of change in the over a two-year time horizon, but understate the impact over a ten-year horizon. It, it, it's kind of consistent. And, and what's interesting to me about that perspective is it's just turning up in your pension fund, and you might not even know it's there, but it's part of a portfolio in these massive things. So. When was the mainstream moment? Like, when did that happen? It just sort of happened. And then there's there's always that when, with interesting thing with tipping points of technologies is is it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Of course, it always was going to happen. Like, the, we, people just flip between those two. And I don't know if we're necessarily in the whole market with, of course, it's always going to happen. But with the iPhone, we definitely had a moment where people were refusing to give up their BlackBerry. And these serious business devices were going to hold on for a while. So I wonder if we're going through that a little bit, the, the correlation of age to your perception on this stuff is, is, is pretty interesting indeed. Uh, Jamie, I guess you're more you're bullish as well, um, more and more. Uh, any, any cautionary words? No, not cautionary. I mean, I think it's just super exciting if you look at the innovation that's happening. And if you think of something like DeFi as a marketplace, you have supply and demand. I think, you know, FinTech and CFI will, will bring the, the demand and help with the liquidity and DeFi is really where you're focused on the product innovation and the kind of collateral types that are being brought through. So as Rian mentioned, there are digital goods, digital assets that, that are now being used to collateralize these networks. But also we're seeing things like physical commodities, so Fetch.ai, a portfolio company of ours is doing something called Metalex, which is um, metals. And, uh, and then, of course, you have physical assets like being turned into security tokens. So... Uh, Aave just did the first, as far as I'm aware, the first mortgage in DeFi, and they've just got an e-money license. Um, so are they now DeFi or are they becoming CeFi? And I think it's that that movement that's getting really interesting. This Petri dish of crypto is still endlessly interesting. So yes, you can buy your Bitcoins and your ETH. They're the good old family favorites. You can get them inside your favorite fintech now, but there's there's amazing things happening in the Petri dish for sure. Uh, that wraps up today's discussion. I think the overwhelmingly your view is that it, it's sort of become 
mainstream without anybody really noticing. And it just kind of quietly happened in the background, which is surprising given how vehemently people reacted to this stuff in the first place. And then yet there's more new things coming and, and maybe that's what it's attracting another generation of users. I, I want to thank everybody for a phenomenal discussion. Uh, where can people find out more about what you and uh, what you're up to, uh, Rian? Let's start with you. Twitter and Medium, where I go on a lot about crypto, um, at Rian underscore is, um, and the book is available at koganpage.com forward slash crypto or all good booksellers from the 3rd of October. And I unpack everything like DeFi, ZeFi, CBDCs, ICOs, and a hundred other acronyms in it. And yield farming, and maybe even sushi. Um, when you see yield farming sushi, then you know you've gone far, too far down the rabbit hole. Um, all right, uh, Jamie, how about you? Where do people find out more? Yeah, so personal rants at uh, Jamie247 on Twitter, uh, the number's 247. Uh, and Outlier Ventures is at slash Basecamp is our accelerator. And if you're a fintech looking to invest in, um, partner with DeFi and blockchain startups, um, you know, reach out. We'll happily connect you with the edge of innovation. Uh, if you want to reach the edge of innovation, talk to Jimmy. I like the sound of that. That's a, that's a sales pitch I can get with. Uh, Kevin, uh, where do people find out more about you and, and what you're up to at Kraken? Yeah, sure. Uh, Kraken.com, K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Um, we're one of the oldest and largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world and, and hopefully a great place for people that are interested in trying it for the first time. Phenomenal. And Cyril? Yeah, Coinbase.com uh, for the retail side, prime.coinbase.com for institutions that are interested. Um, me personally, uh, I'm not very active on crypto Twitter, as they call it, but uh, you can find me at Europe Texan. That means I was born in Texas, but I'm confused and living in Europe. So um, I tweet here and there. It could happen to anyone at any time. You know, it was just, uh, it was just uh, weird, weird circumstances, I'm sure. Uh, phenomenal. Thank you, Cyril, so much for joining us. Uh, you can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter or find me, Simon Taylor, on LinkedIn. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please remember to subscribe. Go on, hit the subscribe button. It's like right there. Hit it hit it uh don't forget to leave us a review it helps make the show better and it helps others find the show too uh speaking of making the show better do give us your thoughts on a super super quick survey bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey that's bitly fintech insider survey as always if you want to join the conversation find 11fs on social media just search for 11fs or fintech insider that's all for now goodbye <laughs>